0: Um, then I do want to say that I haven't finished the book of Hebrews, so still one or two messages to come. But I do want you to, today to uh, consider a passage from Joshua chapter five. So do open your Bible to Joshua chapter five, and uh, I'm going to read from verse thirteen uh, onwards. Very familiar passage, I'm sure. Even the younger people among us uh, have been exposed and, and learned the story um, over the years at Sunday school. So, reading from verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And so Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord." And he said to the people, go, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded, the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And then we read the story, we know it so well, and I want to pick it up a little bit uh, further on, verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, "'Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live.' because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Just so far, then, the reading of the word. Lord, as we come again, we do also want to bow our heads before you in reverence, acknowledging that you are God. Coming, Lord, as Alex has prayed, that you would speak to us, that we would receive, Lord, your word to encourage us, and also, Lord, to challenge us, to correct us in righteousness, praying for your Holy Spirit to be at work as your word is proclaimed as we as we hear that faith we know, Lord, comes from hearing and hearing from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think any among us uh, like war. Who, who would ever want really to have a situation of uh, conflict and war. Uh, Currently, for a long time now, I've been wanting to read a book called The Sunflower. And uh, my daughter found it eventually for me and gave it to me. And I've started reading it just yesterday. And it's the story of uh, victims in the Second World War, victims of the Holocaust, and as I was reading just the opening chapters of the book, I just thought to myself, what a terrible, terrible context to find yourself in, uh, men and women in really hopeless uh, situation of, of conflict. And so I think it's true to say that, that we people want peace. We want to live in a context of peace. We, we like peace. And, and, and most of us want to stay as far as possible away from conflict and, and battles and yet as we look around ourselves in the world we find that, that war seems to happen uh, repeatedly all over the place and, and, and one can personalize that who this morning wants to live in Afghanistan Sure, you've been looking and seeing something on the news of what it must be like in Afghanistan. Who wants to live in Syria? Or who wants to live in the Sudan? We, 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 we don't want that. And it's not only true that politically and, and nationally that, that war occurs, but it's also conflict and struggle and war in the context of the local church and our walk of faith. In reality, conflict cannot be avoided. John Chrysostom, and I want to quote him, he was a preacher of a bygone era and also a martyr. 347 is the year that he was born. He said this, and he said this to Christians, people like us, ordinary men and women, you are a poor soldier of Christ if you think you can overcome without fighting. And suppose you can have the crown without the conflict. And so this morning, it it is true. You you and I would uh, never be required to wear a uniform or, or carry a rifle. But the Christian life involves conflict. The Christian life involves challenges. Sometimes you will need to be on the offensive. And sometimes you will find yourself having to defend yourself. The battles in the Christian life are real. I'm going to touch on this topic this morning. The enemy we have and face is sly and and brutal. And so like Joshua, and we go back literally thousands of years, Joshua and the Israelites who had the Canaanites united against them, We too cannot ignore the efforts, not so much the Canaanites, that's not what we're concerned about, or even if we were in Afghanistan, the Taliban and so on. We need to be concerned about the efforts of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's what the Bible identifies Satan, uh, chapter 2 and verse 2. The ruler of the world, he has the world. And I thought of using the phrase as a tool in his hands. He uses the world as a tool to oppose God and his kingdom of light. Cannot ignore clear indications of conflict repeatedly in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6, a well-known passage again that the younger people learn Uh, At holiday Bible clubs, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. you get the picture? There's a struggle going on between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The Apostle Paul sees this manifesting in the local church in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. It is the intention of Satan to destroy the church. It is his intention to hurt you and me as believers. As the Apostle Peter puts it in chapter 5, of verse 8, he says, Your enemy... You get this, you have an enemy, identify who he is, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That someone may be you this week, it may be me this week. In another context, the Apostle Paul again writing to the church at Corinth, same subject, same issue, struggle, warfare, conflict. Uh, For such men are false apostles, he says, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And so this morning, the message to you, and perhaps it is the context that we have been facing over these past weeks, the opposition toward us Christians is great. Maybe putting it a little bit differently, it's hard to be a Christian. It really is hard to be a Christian. There are struggles and battles that rage from within us, and we can identify them, uh, common struggles that we face in terms of pride or or arrogance, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. We struggle with passions and, and lust with greed and, and deception and selfishness, and, and so easily we identify uh, lesser gods and, and worship in what is called idolatry. And, and so all of this is, is, is what confronts us day in and day out. And, and then not only from the inside, but, but from the outside. The outside, the constantly facing anti-Christ agendas. Have you noticed that? The world doesn't conform, does not align with that which God has revealed and that which God has designed and that which God has said. There's opposition. There's constant uh, manipulation and and, and the desire to change that which God has revealed. And and in many instances, some people have accepted for many generations. There are double agents in the church, people that that come along and, and are not really Serving the Lord, but serving their own agendas, and then this issue of spiritual forces of darkness. It's not just what you see; it's also that which you cannot see. Dear friends, there's a fight to be fought. If you're a believer here this morning, but the good news, and therefore the passage this morning, chose this passage deliberately, is there is no need. For you and me to live a defeated Christian life. Victory is a reality. You can, and I can, with God's help, and, and importantly, and that's what I'm going to try and unfold this morning, with God's help, we can overcome spiritual difficulties. Not only with the help of God, uh, but if we could add even to that, the wisdom, the wisdom that God has provided to live a life of victory. This passage this morning, God has something to say uh, to Joshua and Israel. And it has to do with the subject of conflict and victory that I believe lessons that we can learn. And uh, the passage begins, and I started from verse 13. There is a change uh, in in the sequence of thought uh, in that particular chapter 5. But Joshua receives a visitor, and he learns an important lesson. And I want to begin this morning by, by, by uh, unfolding or unpacking and challenging you with this lesson. And the lesson simply I called my first point this morning, God is for God. I'm going to explain what I mean, but I'll say it again. God is for God. We go back to the passage. We see the visitor presents himself to Joshua as a soldier. The imagery, the uh, context is that this visitor is ready for battle. He has a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua is the appointed leader. He's the leader of Israel, the commander of the armies of Israel and he's a strategic leader. He's a good leader. He has served well as a leader. He's no slouch when it comes to warfare, and therefore immediately uh, uh, establishes or wants to establish the allegiance of his visitor. He sees he's a soldier, so he asks him the question. Verse 13, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? Now I want to pause there, because that's a question... Most of us ask of God Are you really for me or are you for my enemies? Whose side are you on? Well, the visitor gives a surprising and very, I think, significant response that we ought to think of. And different versions translate the Hebrew word differently, but it means the same thing. The ESV translates the response No, I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. Other translations put it, neither, neither. I'm not on their side. I'm not on your side. But then he explains. And here's the fundamental issue, the fundamental lesson that we as Christians need to learn. Verse 14, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Notice what he says there. He's the commander of the army of the Lord. Now we need to digress just for a minute. This visitor, he calls himself the commander of the Lord's army. And and we would refer to this in theological terms as a theophany. This is a a God making himself known. Uh, uh, Pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus occurred again and again. We have it uh, to Abraham, the pilgrim. The Lord came as a traveler. Remember that? to share a friendly meal. Genesis 18. He came to Jacob, the schemer. He came as a wrestler to Jacob to bring him to a place of submission. Genesis 32. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember in the fiery furnace, suddenly there is a fourth person. Again, a theophany, a manifestation. God presenting himself, Jesus in his presence, a pre-incarnate appearance but now Joshua we come to th- back to the passage meets him as the commander of the Lord's army jo- Joshua is the local commander important emphasis on the word local commander and he needed to correctly place himself under the supreme leader the supreme commander of the army so verse 14 see what he does Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? See Joshua immediately is taking commands from the supreme leader because he is the local leader. He understands his place. He understands that there are battles to be fought, there are struggles that will come, that they need to be overcome. But now he has the issue. He has the practical issue. Never forget, and this is of first importance, that God is for God. He is sovereign and supreme. Now, what does that mean? What am I I saying here this morning? I believe that this passage, and it's not only here, we see this in repeated places, He reigns as God, and it is us who conform to His agenda. It is not he that conforms to our agenda. See, there's a difference. There's a subtle difference. Let me give you an ex- illustration. I think it was in 1995, but it's probably happened again and again. But at the end of the Rugby World Cup, the men among us will remember, and perhaps some of the ladies, the team huddled together giving thanks to God for being on their side. Really? What, what about the New Zealanders? Is God not on their side? Or, or the Australians? Do, do, do you see how, how unthinkingly we adopt certain practices and, and we don't think matters through? It is not God who comes through for someone to be on their side. God does not align himself to us. It is us, it is you, it is me who must come through for God. We are, al- we are to align ourselves to Him. God has set a plan for the world. God has decreed creation. God has decreed His redemption plan, which is unfolding. God has decreed that, that things unfold according to His purpose and, and His plan. But Joshua has to learn the lesson. God calls the shots. I found it interesting... I think it was Matinta who prayed this morning or was it Peter who prayed uh, parts of the Lord's prayer our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come what, 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 do we, what does that mean it means that his reign must come he's in charge we submit to him and then the, the prayer even goes one step further thy will be done your will be done on earth as it is in heaven earth conforms to heaven it's not that your will or our will on earth be done in heaven. Do you, do you get what I'm trying to say here? People have a distorted thinking about the, the role that God has in, in our individual lives, in, in even our lives as a church and as a country. It's, it's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is for God. Joshua, you need to submit in reverent submission. goes a step further, the commander of the Lord's army in verse 15, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. That's why I said this is definitely a theophany because that reminds me of Exodus 3. Remember Moses also having to take off his sandals because he stood on holy ground, standing before God. When you draw near to God, when you're a servant of God, when you access in the presence of God, there's no place for flippancy or irreverence and the issue, disobedience or stubbornness. You see, as the battle rages and continues to rage between these kingdoms, and Satan has his scheming and strategic attacking methods... And we struggle with these remaining marks of sin that that, that constantly uh, rear their head uh, in our own hearts. I want to show you today that, remind you, victory is in Christ and it's under Christ, but it's His way. It's His way. I'm not surprised to hear the Apostle Paul in the context of his discussion on spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. See, it's God's way, in God, for God. The battle must be fought. It has to be fought God's way, under God's direction, and thankfully also with God's strength. So that's my first uh, point. And, and the second point I want to move on, not only is God for God, But in this struggle, in these battles that we face, God will test your faith. How many times have you found yourself praying for something? And I'm thinking in temporal terms. We pray for something. We plead with God. But in our pleading, we're dictating to God. I've done that. And I can think of many instances with regard to my career. Uh, as a younger man, in the early years of marriage, I really dictated to God how He should conduct my family and how many children He should give me and, and when He should do it. And, uh, and He didn't answer my way. We, we pray we, thinking that, that we can dictate to God and, and God answers in different ways to what we envisage or what we desire. And so let's go back to the passage and see what is it that God is doing in the unfolding and, uh, of this passage and teaching us the fact that he will test your faith. Well, it would be a huge challenge for the Israelites to penetrate the walled city. Now, I don't know, uh, I've had the privilege a couple of times, in fact, of going to Israel, and I've actually stood on, on these massive, uh, they, they're not four-inch bricks that they built the Jericho wall with. They are massive. They are huge uh, uh, stones that were piled together to make this wall that surrounded the city. It, it must have been a huge challenge to Joshua when he saw how oh, the city was protected. And we read that. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Now put yourself in Joshua's shoes. He's got to come up with a plan. Logically, strategically, conquering the, the, the city of Jericho, and, and to do so, thinking to himself, we need the full force of the army. Makes sense. It had already been established that the people of Jericho, if you go back early in the book in chapter 2, the people in Jericho were melting in fear because they saw the armies of Israel. So why not just go ahead and thrash them with the might of every soldier that he could muster. And I'm emphasizing the uh, process here of logic. Logic would dictate. Use all the men in the army, all the people available to fight. Strike while the iron is hot. Well, that was his thinking until he had an encounter with God. And then having responded in reverence and submission, he's now ready to listen to God but God has a different plan. And that applies in our life. So often God has a different plan. And, and it, therefore, it, there's a conflict. There's a conflict. I have a plan. God has a plan. And it becomes a test of faith. Do you trust God when His ways are not always our ways? And so my next point is part of the test is God often has different ways of doing things. And that trust depends a lot on what you think about who God is. Can you trust Him? Do you trust Him? The commander of the Lord's army in this passage gives instructions, and I won't read all of them, but you you, you know the story. March around the city once with all the armed men, do this for six days. Uh, Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark on the seventh day. March around the city seven times and and blow the trumpets and shout. If I can say it, because I think most people would think it, you can't help noticing the strangeness of God's method. Which military strategist would come up with such a scheme? I don't think anyone. There's a strangeness, a strangeness of God's method. Armed men, seven priests, blowing horns, the ark, the rear guard, walking around once, going back to camp, doing it for six, and then on the seventh I mean, this is strange. We would even think, Stupid. But there's a statement that follows, a statement of assurance. So we have the word of God that comes to Joshua. In verse 2c, the Lord says, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Does he believe the word of God? So the strangeness of method is assessed in line with, can he trust the word of God? Well, Joshua must decide. And in this instance, wonderfully, he decides to obey God rather than following his own reasoning. His faith has been put to the test, and it has been proved genuine. Now, I don't think any one of us will ever have to uh, lead an army uh, or a few people blowing trumpets around a city for six days and seven days but God does call you to do many, many other things. God brings other things into your life where logically and, and strategically you would think, no, I have a better method, and yet God's word directs otherwise. When it comes to your life, and the unfolding of that life, when it comes to Godliness and the living of a godly life, and then when it comes to salvation. Let's take salvation as an example. We live in the world today where many so-called professing believers are saying, no, uh, uh, the way that the Bible unfolds uh, salvation is far too restrictive. It's far too exclusive. It can't be that it's just those who respond in faith on the basis of Jesus who... Uh, who died on the cross and, and, and the death that he died is in the place of, of the death of sinners and we call it a penal, substitutionary, atonement. No, no that's, that's from a bygone century. We need to adjust our thinking. Uh, uh, God is a God of love. Don't we read that in the Bible? And so therefore, there is a universal salvation. That's, that's a message that many people are proclaiming. In fact, many, many people are proclaiming Or do we believe the strangeness of the message of the Bible, where Jesus says, you must be born again? Or where Jesus says, uh, I am the way, the truth. And, and the life. And, and it's not just to do with salvation, it has to do with mission. How will we reach the nations of the world? Well, it's making disciples of the nations. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of God. Well, is that what we're going to continue to do, or will we come up with alternative strategies? The strangeness of following in obedience that which God has revealed and preserved for us. Over the years, and, and the list is long. Uh, the rightness and, and wrongness of, of, of things around us, um, new fads, and what the writer to the Hebrew, Hebrews calls diverse and strange teaching. Will we adopt those things? When we are faced with persecution, will we turn our backs on Jesus and, and the claims that he makes about himself and about the world? Even in our personal circumstances. We would write the story so differently. I see this again repeated in my life with my wife's illness. I would not write the script God's way. And so the temptation is to become angry with God. The temptation is to even think, well, does God care? But do you believe your own heart? Or do you believe the scriptures? Do you believe who God is? Each one of us has to decide. In the path of your life, many bends in the road will come. Many struggles will uh, unfold. Will you trust God, or will you follow your own instincts? Will you recognize that God's ways are not always our ways? But there's a second test of faith. It becomes obvious in this passage. It's it's that uh, I've called it the priority of obedience. Something strange in this passage as it unfolds. Uh, they, they do what God says. They march once, they go back, they march again, they do that for six, they get to the seventh day, they go, they shout. And then you would think, you would think, well, now we're going to read about the collapse and, 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 and the takeover of, of Jericho. But we don't. And, and from verse 17 to 19, you, you, you read about a whole bunch of instructions that are given about the city and the treasures of the city. God is testing them. God is again testing them. The city, and, and he tells them what they need to do. The city and all that is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she uh, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep, uh, but keep away from the devoted things. That you will not bring about your own destruction by taking them. Uh, otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble in it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go to the treasury. Now, do you see what's going on over here? There's a test of obedience that God is presenting in the midst of victory. So, victory is about to be achieved. But in the midst of that victory being achieved, there's a test of faith where God says, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. And if you don't listen to me, there are consequences. The treasures were not for their personal gain. It was not for their benefit, but it was to be devoted to God. If you know the book of Joshua, you'll know that as you read later in chapter 7, God's anger came about as a result of disobedience. So obedience is an important uh, reality for us. Not to take the commands of God lightly. The instructions of God are not optional, they are a true tests of faith. But then thirdly, and just quickly, I want to just highlight the fact that God always has the final word. And and, and that's important in our lives just to know that uh, God has the final word. At the end of the incident, we see Jericho is destroyed, and uh, Israel enjoys victory. And it is because of the hand of God. God brought it about. God did it, and, and positively there's victory, but negatively there's judgment. Both are true. Now, the judgment is something I want to touch on because God had explained back In Genesis 15, to Abraham, something about this victory, this judgment. God had said that his descendants, that is Abraham's descendants, would not inherit Canaan immediately, but would come back in the fourth generation. Genesis 15, verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Why why did God do that? Four generations. Well, the important lesson for us to receive, the message here, is God patiently waited for a period of four generations for them to turn from their sin. But they didn't. But there comes a time, and as we see in this particular instance, a time when their sins had reached their their limit. And God brought judgment upon them. So many people, when they read the Old Testament, especially, they conclude or they they reach a conclusion that injustice often took place from the hand of God. And I'm really raising this point this morning because I'm showing you that it's not injustice. God is just in enabling and allowing people to live and to breathe and to enjoy this world, but to a point, but while they're living and while they're breathing and and while they're eating and going about their lives, there is a message that God is real, that God exists, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that people ought to be repenting from their sin and trusting Jesus for their salvation. And we see the salvation of Rahab and her family in the midst of destruction and judgment. And Joshua speared Rahab the prostitute with her family. Grace shown to her. God continues, folk, to be patient in the world today. But there will be a time when that patience will end. Judgment will take place. But in the meanwhile, it is a call to those Are weary and in need of rest. I want to conclude this morning. Uh, We copied at the hill this morning what we did some weeks ago here at uh, Arcadia. We had a hymn morning. All right, remember that? A couple of must be months ago now, we had a hymn morning. We sang old songs. And so in my preparation, I was thinking about some old songs. And uh, got to the end of this message, and there was an old song that came into my mind, and I think it's an appropriate conclusion to this message. The old song, and maybe some of you will know it Have thine own way. You know that? I see some heads nodding, and normally the, the bald heads and the gray heads, okay? Have, have thine own way, have thine own way. And, and, and the words continue You are the potter and I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I'm waiting, yielded and still. Now, there's great truth in that hymn. And again, to repeat those words, you are the potter, God, I am the clay, not I am the potter and you are the clay. Got to get that the right way around. Well, I did a little bit of digging and I discovered that this particular hymn was written by a, a lady by the name of Adelaide Pollard. She was a missionary and I thought her story fitted this sermon because she was a missionary. She was on one occasion trying to raise funds for a trip to Africa. Now, hang on a minute. That's logical, isn't it? A missionary should be successful in her efforts to raise funds to go to Africa to deliver the good news of the gospel, so we would think? Well, the story goes that her unsuccessful attempt to raise money left her experiencing distress of soul. Didn't go her way, you see? So she was distressed. Story continues, the distress of soul... And a simple prayer that you heard from an elderly woman. This was the prayer she heard from the elderly woman. God, it really doesn't matter what you do with us, Lord. Just have your way with our lives. And I want to repeat that. It really doesn't matter what you do with our lives, Lord. Just have your way. That inspired her to write that hymn. She learned the lesson. God's way, God's timing, God's purposes are not always according to what we think they ought to be. And so she learned the lesson of submission while I'm waiting. and folks, maybe you're at a place in your life. There's almost a kind of a head-butting. You think it should be a certain way, but God is determining another way. Be healed to God. He knows best in the big scheme of things. Even that which is intended for evil. You, You hear me often saying that. God intends for good. And Lord, I pray especially for those who are in the midst of perhaps a spiritual struggle, Perhaps even a relational battle, just in a place of life where things are so hard. And Lord, I do pray that by your Spirit and just the wisdom of your word, you would help such a person, individuals. Perhaps even as a church, Lord, as we go forward to constantly remember that you are our strength and shield. Lord, that we can trust you, that we can depend on all that you have revealed to us in the written word. And Lord, even that which you unfold in the providences, sometimes dark providences of life. And so we commend each other to you. Lord, we are weak, we are frail. Please mold us and make us into that which you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.